my having the phone up here is not a generational crisis of me receiving texts um, while at the podium. I have a tendency when I'm speaking to speak for a long time, so this is my, my timer. Beginning of June 1998, I walked across a podium, uh, receiving my diploma from Washington High School, where I graduated valedictorian. I was uh, voted most likely to succeed, class kiss up, um, <laughs> and a host of other things for people that are off to uh, to go do important things. And at the end of that same month, June 1998, I found myself at West Point at the United States Military Academy. About three and a half months later, I was back in Iowa. And since then, I've had ample opportunity to, uh, to see how much <coughs> My path in the military has coincided with my, my path in, in faith. And it's not really until, uh, until recently that I've had the opportunity to, uh, over the last few months, had the opportunity to really reflect on, uh, on my journey. You'll have to give me a little bit of leeway. Um, it's kind of it's a minor miracle that I'm here at all. As um, um, as was said a, a, a moment ago, um, uh, there are a lot of battles um, with, with cancer, and I, I've been able to uh, experience the uh, side effects uh, of medication. Um, one of the last few weeks it kind of slowed me down a bit. And now, since you know the uh, the end of the story, I'll uh, tell you how we got there. back up a little bit. In, um, I grew up as an evangelical. My family attended Maranatha Bible Church and in, um, when I was in elementary school and I was homeschooled as a kid. Uh, my nickname among my uh, boyhood pals was either Mama's Boy or Homeboy. Uh, and uh, when we when I got into high school, we started going to uh, River of Life, a charismatic church out on Blair's Ferry Road. And I had a, a lot of amazing experiences in, uh, in both of those communities. And uh, I learned the Bible, first and foremost. And I, I learned how, how and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus uh, in that community, uh, in those communities. But some things started to uh, to change within me when I was in high school, and perhaps you can call them premonitions of of things to come. I started to experience um, premonitions of, of of things that I would encounter later, particularly in terms of uh, in terms of sufferings, and that's kind of how the Catholic Church came on the scene for me. I was 16 when, as a, uh, a member of River of Life uh, Church, when 
my friend Jared Trabnicek's dad was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform, the same form of cancer that my father would die from uh, several years later, or I guess a number of years later. And there came a point in, in, my, in high school where the way that I explain it to people is that in my experience of worship in particular, I felt like I was getting... vindication for you. Where the way that I often explain to people is that I felt like I was getting assaulted with happiness. That I felt like when I was at worship I had I, I always had to be happy or in a state of victory. I had to be conquering something. I was never allowed to be to be um, sorrowful while at church. Um, because the Holy Spirit, um, if I had enough faith, uh, could overcome and conquer any 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 uh, setbacks put in my way. And when uh, Mr. Travnicek, Dr. Travnicek, Rick uh, became ill, uh, the church began uh, praying for him. And, and not necessarily uh, simply asking that uh, a miracle would possibly take place, but, um, but claiming it, but claiming that, that Rick would be healed claiming healing, and for whatever reason, um, I came to church uh, every Sunday and was very angry. I was angry at our minister, I was um, angry at our church community. Dr. Tradencheck had um, performed emergency surgery for me once after a soccer game when I'd taken an elbow to the mouth and my two front teeth got um, jacked parallel to the roof of my mouth and my dad had to drive me 80 miles an hour back from the soccer fields in Muscatine so that Dr. Travnicek could um, could take care of my teeth for me and I remember them uh, laughing amongst themselves because they both um, had the name Rick. Uh, you know, like, what seems to be the problem, Rick? Well, I don't know, Rick. And all this time I'm just asking for at the, uh, the uh, anesthesia so that he can get the work done with. And I would come to church these days, um, back when I was 16, not in a cynical way, um, but in a, I guess in, a, in, a, in an attitude of, of, of acceptance that I, I, I felt like Rick was going to pass. And I would have to walk through that same dilemma uh, that, that same road several years later when it was my father um, who would be in the situation. And I would look at, um, at Travis, Rick's son, and try to put myself in his, in his shoe steps. And try to wonder what he was feeling. And, and the more that the church cried out to, uh, to claim Rick's healing, the more that I lose my ability to uh, to attend church, I was um, I was uh, I w was hoping that I was wrong, um, and uh, and that he would be healed. But that that's not how it turned out. And 
as I went into college, um, I went, as I said earlier, when I went off to the U.S. Military Academy, there was a, somewhat of a, of, uh, a, a remnant of that sense of, of sorrow um, in the face of, of great hope, where you want something to work out, you want something um, as much as you've ever wanted anything in your life, and for it not to come to pass. And throughout high school, um, I had worked very, very hard to become uh, an academy cadet. And I was blown away. Um, oh yeah, some of the other things that I was voted for, most conservative. I was the president of the Young Republicans and started a, um, a, a group um, of, for students who believed in, uh, in literal six-day creationism um, called Ex Nihilo, and um, that gained uh, me a lot of notoriety. Um, there were four of us, I think. <laughs> but when I arrived at the academy, I thought, this is definitely a place where I'm going to fit in. And, you know, an overachiever in athletics, an overachiever in academics, an overachiever in everything that I've done. I've never really failed at anything. Um, but when, when I got there, things just started to feel out of place, and I didn't have a name for it. I was, you know, only 18 at the time. What had I really gone through in life? And um, when I ended up leaving, uh, it was after uh, a week of crying in the office of the chaplain, um, wondering how I, I could have made such a blunder uh, turning down the other schools that I had applied to, and by that point, um, all of the admissions uh, windows had closed, and I went back to uh, to Iowa, and really with the rug having pulled out from beneath me, uh, I didn't know where I was going in life. Um, I wish I could tell you the entire story about the academy, but I'll definitely go off um, off course time-wise. So I'm going to try to keep this this train rolling. Um, when I came back and uh, enrolled at the University of Iowa, I was uh, also enrolled in ROTC. I, you know, I came from a military family. My grandfather fought in World War II, Korea and Vietnam. My father had been a captain in the military. And, um, and I guess it had always been a thing that I had um, anticipated being a part of my life. And when I left the academy, my my regimental commander uh, stood me at attention in front of his uh, in front of his desk and told me that he he thought I was a weak fibered individual and had the makings of a substandard um, uh, man and uh, and that I would never um, have the kind of moral fiber to be uh, to be a quality officer and mostly out of spite for him I enrolled in ROTC and. <laughs> And thought, you know, maybe ROTC, you know, West Point wasn't the right thing for me, but I'm going to find my way somewhere, somewhere else, uh, on another path. And that same sense of, of of somberness that I felt back when I was 16 at the passing of Rick Trabnicek, which I took very deeply, um, as though, um, I guess, as 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 deeply as I could, not actually being um, Rick's son. And I took that, that somberness with me into uh, the University of Iowa. Um, 
that had passed with me through, uh, through West Point, where um, there's something that I'm looking for. I'm trying everything uh, to find it. I, I haven't found it yet, but I'm still looking. And I, I wasn't being helped out much by church. Um, because again, at the churches that I was attending at the time, um, I, I wasn't allowed to be sad, or I wasn't allowed to, to, um, to have unanswered questions that the Holy Spirit couldn't whisk away for me. And if it, if it wasn't for liturgy at um, a local Episcopalian church in Iowa City, I would have stopped going to church altogether. And I was so blown away by the fact that, um, that contrary to what I had heard growing up, um, that all of the uh, the old churches, the Catholics, the the uh, Episcopalians, the Orthodox, um, who don't really have real relationships with God, with their liturgy and everything, that they were actually praying the Bible. Lo and behold, that's um, and it was it was such a comfort to me to be able to pray the Bible um, and to and to have that be the focus of a church service, where um, not so much emphasis was placed upon the pastor. Uh, where I didn't have to hear in my head all the arguments that I was having with the pastor, it made church less about me and uh, and, and more about uh, more about God and more about hearing directly from God um, through the Word. And and I started a journey that began with the uh, the Episcopalian Church and eventually would end up in the Catholic Church. But before I got there, I had to, to go through 9-11. And 9-11 took place during my senior year of, of college. And I was on my way to um, my snooty cafe uh, job where I made lattes and that were overpriced. And I get a, I open up my phone and I've got a bunch of uh, a bunch of calls uh, from a bunch of numbers that I no longer recognized, and it was friends from high school wondering if I was getting sent overseas um, because I was still a member of the military. And and I I, I said no, um, not that I know of at least. Um, I I don't see how that would really be possible. Um, but I, I forgot to tell you what part of the story was. Which was that I, when I was 17, uh, in order to uh, finalize my appropriateness to get into West Point, I enlisted in the reserves, and I went to basic training the summer before my senior year of high school, and the summer that I would have gone to do my uh, specialty training, I went to the academy instead, but because I'd signed up at the age of 17, I um, I had a contract. And by the time 9-11 came around, even though I was no longer drilling with an active unit, um, ROTC didn't count um, as, a, uh, uh, as a sort of unit that could, uh, could send you abroad. Um, it brought to mind that I had dedicated my, uh, myself to service. And, and what did I think about that? And I didn't have any other answers for what I uh, thought I was going to do with my life. Um, I was still very much um, in the throes of trying to find what it was I was supposed to do with my life after having left the academy. And, and I remember at the time being very angry 
um, at President Bush for for having uh, for not having gone to Vietnam um, when he was in the service and he was in uh, in the reserves and it was a very similar situation that I was in at the time where if I wanted to I probably could have gone gone through and, and, and not served and no one would have known about it um, and I would have remained as a, a name on a computer screen um, on someone's computer in St. Louis and I didn't want to be that kind of a person um, is what I told myself. I wanted to be a person who when he said he would do something he would do it and that even though he, he perhaps could find a way out um, I, I wanted to make sure that I was where the people that I'd signed up with were, where most of those people were in, um, on their way to Afghanistan. And so I went down to the landing station and I re-enlisted uh, for full active duty and I'm going to conquer you. <laughs> One of the uh, the uh, side effects here and I have to deal, deal with uh, tonight is it's really hard for me to uh, uh, to find words sometimes um, as a result of the, some of the medications that I'm on. Um, so when it gets annoying, just pray. I went back to the recruiting station, um, senior year of college, and looked at the jobs that were available to me. And I had interest in, in in language training, and the only job that offered uh, language training at the time uh, was an interrogator. And I thought, well, that's a you know strange sort of a strange sort of job. You know, I've seen movies like The Deer Hunter and The Swinging Lamp, and I'm not sure if that's really what I have what um, I'd like to do with my life. Um, but I, I started to think about it again, and decided that perhaps it would be better to have a person like me in that situation who was very unsure about um, about the war on terrorism, very sure what that even meant, and was unsure um, about my place in the military as well. Like I'd been in the military just about in every other possible way you could be in the military uh, up until this point, and, um, and did not have, um, have rest in fulfilling my obligation, I just knew it was my duty and, um, and, and felt that in the lack of any sort of overriding um, conviction not to participate, it was my duty to, uh, to, to finish my contract. And, and so I thought that perhaps a person who, is, who was a little bit more, let's say, ethically uneasy about what was taking place, it'd be better to have a person like me in the high pressure situations like interrogation to make sure that they were that it was done ethically, and then to have a person who wasn't thinking about those sorts of things, who hadn't read Saint Augustine, and, and who hadn't read um, Thomas Aquinas, and hadn't cared um, about the teachings of just war in those situations. It would be it would be better to have a person like me. But I also remember thinking very clearly. Remember Joshua, you value Alexander Solzhenitsyn more than you do General Schwarzkopf. If they make you do anything you, um, that you think is immoral, it's better to go to jail. And that was the amount of anxiety I brought with me going back into military service. And so I was anything but clear 
and um, and and certain about what I was doing. And th this is at the age of of 22. So I graduate from the University of Iowa, and um, once again, just like in high school, within less than a month of graduating, I found myself back on active duty and in training. And I was in uh, Fort Huachuca, Arizona, uh, in the middle of the desert. And I spent the next 16 weeks there learning how to interrogate, and I was very good at it. Um, I had spent a lot of time in acting, and that that's uh, in in the theater, and that came to uh, to my to my aid, but it came a little bit too well uh, to my assistance, and I began to feel a different sort of unease, rather than vocational um, unease. Uh, it was the unease of which, if you haven't been there, it's really hard to communicate. But it's the unease that comes with assuming the role of being an agent of justice when 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 you're right and the person across the interrogation table from you is wrong and you feel justified to do just about anything to make sure that whatever that person who is clearly evil uh, is punished or um, you know, gives up the information that he or she has. And for a kid who grew up in the evangelical world, I grew up in Bible quizzing and I was, um, I was good at that too. And um, at one point I memorized it was that the, the entire book of Matthew. No, it was only chapter two. Um, it was the only chapter. It was just chapter two. Um, profanity started rolling off of my lips during interrogations because I, I was playing a role. And I learned how to play it well. And that's what people did. Um, we were trained in the, in the, according to the Geneva Conventions, that was never um, unclear. Um, but I became very foul, and uh, and I found a way of of, of justifying it um, in the same way that I guess that soldiers who kill in battle, um, which is a foul thing to do, um, find a way to deal with what they're going through. Um, and when I graduated from. Uh, from the interrogation school, um, I was I graduated with honors um, for being a, a good interrogator, and I went off to Monterey, California, at the Defense Language Institute, where I studied Arabic uh, for a year and a half. And when the war on terrorism shifted from Afghanistan and moved into Iraq, I watched the shock and awe campaign on the morning television. In my in my classroom, with um, one of my professors, it was always the same professor in the morning, and uh, her name is uh, Mary Johanna. She's a, a Chaldean Catholic uh, from uh, Mosul in northern Iraq, which is modern-day Nineveh, and and I thought over and over again, this is very awkward to say the least, that I'm watching, and her, her family lived in Baghdad. I'm watching the the demolition of a city where her family lives, and she's preparing me to go and do more warfare um, uh, in the, uh, in her homeland. And I never had the uh, the confidence to uh, to ask her how she felt about being in that situation, but I know it, it definitely. 
bothered me a great deal. And it bothered me a great deal that I ended up spending a, um, a great deal of time reading about the, um, the history of, of church teaching, which inevitably was the Catholic Church um, rather than the, uh, the Episcopalian Church, uh, because all of the church teachings belong to the Catholic Church. Um, and so I inevitably found myself reading, uh, reading Catholic writers and looking for answers to my questions. And I ended up going to a theology conference in Seattle and asked a, a very prominent theologian um, who was very much against the, uh, the Iraq War um, what he would do if hypothetically he were in the situation of a person roughly like me. Uh, and uh, he said I'd tell him to get out. And I didn't feel like he had really listened to me um, with that sort of a quick response. I was still in the same dilemma that I'd been when I was at the University of Iowa. I'd signed a contract. I'd, I'd promised to do something. And I felt that, for, that perhaps one way of dealing with my um, ever um, deepening conviction that I was about to be sent to do something that I didn't feel I should do morally. Um, that one compromise would be to uh, to become a chaplain, and chaplains are non-combatants. And um, I came from a family of, um, of therapists, so I, the joke is always I grew up hearing, "How does that make you feel?" And and both of my parents, at one point um, or another, um, had both been ordained. Um, as uh, Protestant um, uh, ministers, as um, marriage and family uh, counselors, and and I studied philosophy in uh, in undergraduate school, and was very interested in theology, and I thought that that might be a suitable way of going forward. And I became uh, confirmed with a, uh, a high Anglo-Catholic church, a splinter group that had uh, broken away from the Episcopal Church USA, and uh, we did Mass very much like St. Wenceslas here, uh, where the priest still faced ad orientum, and uh, even though we were Anglicans, um, uh, some of our liturgy uh, was in Latin as well. And, um, and, I was confirmed under the idea that I was going to uh, become ordained. Uh, that was my that was my desire, and uh, to eventually become a, um, a chaplain in the military. And I applied to seminary, was accepted to seminary, and but was uh, deployed almost immediately after my graduation from uh, from language school. And I was deployed to Abu Ghraib prison uh, in the immediate wake of the prisoner abuse scandal. And so if I'd ever thought at one point uh, that it would be better to have a person like me in tough situations like this, um, I now had my opportunity uh, to see what sort of a difference I could make. And we were uh, the cleanup crew uh, sent to, uh, to make sure that the things have, that happened um, at the prison, that it, all of us have, um, have become over aware of 
didn't happen again. And I was deployed about two weeks after um, Edward Grave had um, been um, bombed. It was like 73 times over the course of 24 hours. It was the what they, the military calls the softest target in all of Iraq, which means it's the most uh, susceptible uh, for being hit and hit often. And I didn't comfort mom much. And I went to Iraq, um, filled with a great deal of, of, of unease, but no, but I knew that I was um, well skilled in what I've been trained to do. And when I arrived to the uh, the convoy that would bring me and my comrades to uh, to Abu Ghraib prison, the the convoy commander asked, "Who's never done this before?" And what he meant was, who's never been on an, armored on an armored convoy before? And I was the only person to raise a hand. And so he steps through the crowd, looks at me square in the eye, and he says, we don't fire warning shots. When you remove your safety lever from safe to semi, you shoot to kill. And for about a month, I didn't think anything. Um, the military does a very good job in, in training you and um, in bringing people that have that would never dream of being in situations like combat, getting them to the point that they can be, uh, that, that they can be very efficient in doing so. And for the next 20 minutes of my first armored convoy ride, I wasn't thinking about um, democracy or freedom or any of the things that we um, tie to military service. I was looking at who was on the side of the road, and by the time that I'd finished the, the convoy ride, I had an indentation in my thumb, um, which was placed on uh, the selector lever that would potentially move it from safe to semi. And I remember th thinking how thankful I was that I had never had to, to move that selector lever. And every time that I went on, a, on an armored convoy, the very first thing I did before I thanked God for my own safety, I thanked, um, I thanked God for not having um, put me in a situation or allowed a situation to occur where I would have to move that safe, the selector lever from safe to semi. I was far more afraid of being one who kills than of being killed myself. Far more anxious about that possibility. And so during the first month of combat naivety, which is what every single person who's ever been deployed must go through um, before you learn how things operate in combat. For that first month, I tried to find things that could, um, that could help me to uh, be able to think and to feel again, because the, the hardest thing is to be able to feel. You might get your brain to be able to work through you know, tactic and tactical and strategic um, sorts of things, but be, whether or not you can feel what you're doing with any sense of um, moral uh, or emotional urgency, that's a far different um, task. I, uh, I kept the daily offices without exception, um, and every time that my, uh, my interrogation shift ended, I would go directly to the chapel, and if the chaplain couldn't, um, couldn't make it for, uh, for Sunday services because of um, road conditions or perceived threats, 
um, I would uh, pray the Mass in his absence um, just so that I could hear the liturgy spoken. And uh, I spent a lot of time reading uh, John Paul II as well. And all this at the same time, I was conducting uh, two interrogations a day, uh, six days a week. And once a month, General Miller would come to our compound and he would give intelligence briefings about what was taking place within our um, sphere of influence. And we would talk very casually about, um, about tactical exploitation. Because the, the textbook definition of interrogation is to exploit the greatest amount of intelligence in the least amount of time. And that word exploits, we would use um, without thought. And while I was reading John Paul, There was a phrase that kept on coming back to me, which was um, that anyone who reduces another human being uh, as a means to an end, as an object of exploitation, that person participates in the culture of death. And that's what I brought with me to the interrogation booth every day, and what I brought with me into confession um, every week was, am I a participant in the culture of death? In the way that I am relating to this human who was across the table from me, and eventually I would have a, an interrogation with a 22-year-old uh, jihadi who was a self-proclaimed jihadist. He had come from Iraq, uh, come to Iraq from Saudi Arabia specifically to um, participate in jihad, so I asked him um, about what uh, jihad meant to him. And um, his explanation was the following. Um, a non-Muslim army invades Muslim country. It's the duty of the Muslim to, to expel the foreign army. And that was, uh, that was the extent of it. Um, his cousin had died, and he came to fill the shoes of his cousin. And um, over the course of the next two hours of our interrogation, he tried to convert me to Islam. And, and he said that he, uh, he felt sorry for, uh, for me. Because he knows that if, if it was the will of God for him to spend the rest of his life in prison, he would take that as the will of God. But he didn't think that I had the sort of peace in my life that if, that if I were uh, to be in his situation, that I would be able to accept that as the will of God for my life. And I remember, oh, so clearly, saying the exact same line to so many people as an evangelical, trying to convert them, wondering if they had the sort of peace in their life um, that I had. Um, because of my relationship with God. Uh, but this is a very awkward situation. Um, and at, so, at some point, um, he said as much. He said, you know, you're a very strange man. <laughs> you say you're a Christian, but you don't do as the one you call Christ, to turn the other cheek and to pray for those who persecute you. And I said, well, if you admire the teachings of Christ, why don't you do the same? And he said... Jesus was um, a holy man and, and a holy prophet. And Jesus taught forgiveness. But that's not the full revelation. The full revelation came with Muhammad. And, um, and I believe he actually used um, the word um, uh, retribution. That's how it was translated to me. Um, that with the full revelation that came with Muhammad, um, retribution was a possibility, and perhaps even a duty. 
And I knew at that point I couldn't get into a theological um, debate with him over who had the, 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 the more right theology. Because I wasn't doing as the one I called Christ. I had, had come to the interrogation room day after day after day just filled with anxiety um, over, over whether I was um, participating in the culture of death that John Paul II described. Um, or whether I was um, paying more attention to the city of man rather than the city of God. And all I wanted to do was to have a conversation with him man to man and to have a conversation about, um, about how our previous teachings uh, were working for us. Because it, the way things were going, it, it got us into a situation where we both thought um, one another legitimate in killing the other. And I know that when, when St. Peter says, be prepared to proclaim the hope that is within you at all times, um, I'm fairly certain he didn't include um, that in, in his picture. At least for those who, who felt it as acutely as I did. And I stopped the interrogation, and I went to my, uh, my supervisor, and I said, I can't go in that room anymore. If I go back in there, I'm going to see a 22-year-old kid who's looking for answers, and I'm a 24-year-old kid who's looking for answers. And if I go back in that room, all I'm going to do is want to talk to, to, talk to him um, about the cycle of vengeance and, um, and God, and see if we can find a way, 10 years, 20 years from now, when he's not in prison and I'm not in the military, to be able to find, a, to be able to find each other someday and to sit down and have a conversation. I, I still pray for that possibility. And within a day, I, um, I became certain that, I that what I needed to do um, was apply for conscientious objector status. I needed to leave the military. And not because everybody has to, um, but because it had been communicated uh, to me quite clearly that it's it's what God was asking um, of me to do. Cardinal George has a very eloquent way of putting it, that not everyone is called to the priesthood, not everyone is called to the special um, charism of celibacy, and not everyone is called to, to total nonviolence. Um, but some people, but some people are, and I'm one of those people. And it would have been disobedient uh, to God for me to uh, to not be obedient to that call. Um, so I left the military um, on my mother's birthday, uh, which was the same day that I'd gone back into the military. Uh, it had been a terrible day, and it turned into a great day three years later. And I found myself back in Iowa City, where I'd done my undergraduate work. And for the next four years, I studied uh, literature and writing. And I now teach uh, writing at a college in Chicago. And, and during my last year at the University of Iowa, um, my dad was diagnosed uh, with glioblastoma multiform, the same disease that had taken the life of Dr. Travnicek. And I moved home uh, to take care of my dad uh, with my mother. And, and I thought that I had learned a lot about, um, about life and about suffering, and I certainly had seen a lot of it um, in Iraq and experienced um, a share of it myself. Um, 
came to a different level uh, taking care of my father. The, uh, his cancer uh, took all of his executive capacities and his ability to speak, or not his speech capacity, but his ability to, to create sentences, um, his ability to, uh, to uh, use language. And that same year, uh, just about a month or so before um, the first seizure that led us to that diagnosis, I had handed in a paper to um, uh, a professor about, um, I was writing a paper about the philosopher Martin Heidegger and his notion of pain and the possibility of non-linguistic experience. And so I'd spent the, the previous seven months investigating from an academic standpoint um, what it would be like to not have language and how it would be to, um, to experience the world um, without language. And then God gave me the lab course um, for the next year with my father. And what I most experienced, um, other than a great deal of grief, um, lack of sleep, um, a repeat of the of, of, of PTSD for uh, for certain. Every time that you'd hear a, um, a creaky um, uh, door or um, an awkward sound, mom and I both would would both you know, tense up in the same way that for me at at Abu Ghraib, be whether or not there had been a, you know, a shot fired or a mortar attack. This time it was whether my father had had a seizure and was falling on the floor, and um, and. For that year, um, because I was the only person um, sizable enough to be able to take care of my dad um, physically, I um, I spent um, most of the entire year with him. Um, showers, bathroom. And toward the end, I um, I slept next to him uh, to make sure um, that he was okay physically if he did have a seizure while sleeping. And the gift that I received during that year was being taught by a very holy man how to die. And, and after having spent that time contemplating what it would mean to experience life without language, one of the things that I realized was that the, the holiness that my father had developed um, and that had been graced to him uh, by God uh, through a great deal of perseverance in his life, that's what sustained him during the year that he uh, he didn't have language and he didn't have the, the, his, his his full capacities that the man that he had he had become and all of the days leading up to the moment when his capacities were taken away from him that's what allowed him um, to teach me as much as he did during those uh, during the final um, year of his life and he would kiss me on my lips every time that I left the house and returned and. And we'd never really done that um, prior to him being uh, being ill. Um, but it, to me, it, it was it was a, a sense of, of him um, knowing that he had little time to be able to convey to me um, that he loved me, and um, and that's certainly the way that I took it. Um, it was only um, a year and a half later that I would be diagnosed um, with a, uh, a very rare form of lung cancer.
uh, called adenocarcinoma. And it um, had metastasized to uh, my spine, my liver, my adrenal glands, and my, my right hip. Um, obviously, at that point, it's stage four. Um, I was diagnosed uh, November of um, last year, early November. And, and I thought, well, uh, well a lot, I thought a lot of things. Um, the first thing that occurred to me um, was the week before I'd been diagnosed, I had um, been given basically my dream job um, as, a, as a writer, um, getting teaching jobs at good, at good colleges are very hard to come by in this economy. And I had been uh, recruited, actually, for um, a job to, uh, to teach creative writing to graduate students at uh, Columbia College in Chicago. And I didn't, apply to the, I didn't even apply to the job. Um, and I received my diagnosis a week later. And I thought, well, this didn't happen by accident. So God's trying to tell me that he's not done with me yet. Um, that, um, that this is for a reason. And I might not know it quite now, um, but I'll come, to, I'll come to know it. And the, the second thing that, that came through my mind was, um, you're also not going to die yet because you haven't been made a priest yet. This, that was something that you started that I started a while ago, and um, and I don't know where that's going to go. There are a lot of ways to be a priest um, and to um, to have a vocation in, in one's life. Um, but as we found the way uh, forward in my own cancer, uh, we learned um, a bit of of what the most likely cause was. One of the things that the US military um, has done for, for years is they dispose of their trash by means of things called burn pits. And everything from batteries to body parts to plastics to um, uh, medical equipment gets thrown into these burn pits. And uh, people who have a lot of exposure on a daily basis. They come home and they're dead within three months. And um, I slept near um, uh, a burn pit and worked in our company uh, uh, burn barrel in the last week before we deployed uh, back to the United States. And the form of cancer that I have, it's it's incredibly, incredibly rare that a person of my um, age and demographic would ever, could ever get this form of cancer apart from the, um, my exposure to burn pits. And the first thing that, um, that occurred to me, similarly to the diagnosis, was a certain sense of, actually of relief, that, and, and a certain amount of honor that my dad never had the, the opportunity to express to anybody what his year of having cancer was like. And I had the opportunity, at, given my diagnosis, to share that year with him after the fact. And I've certainly felt the presence of my father um, throughout 
um, the last uh, few months, forgetting how many. Um, I also felt a certain amount of honor um, in the fact that I had the opportunity to share in the sufferings of the Iraqis. Um, because the burn pits that we used and were near me at Abu Ghraib, those were all in the midst of farm fields. And it's slowly developing um, the awareness that Americans have of, of the impact upon U.S. soldiers um, and contractors, that the, the impact of, of burn pits, which is essentially the, um, the modern-day equivalent to Agent Orange, um, that's going to be affecting the Iraqis for decades uh, because it's going to be in the soil, uh, which is then going to be in the food, and it's going to be in the water. And right now I'm applying for service-connected benefits, and I don't know if I'll be accepted or not, but if I am accepted, um, please pray for that, if you would. If I am accepted uh, for benefits, it gives me an opportunity to stand up for, for, um, for people who didn't ask us to, to, to set up burn pits in their backyards. Um, and while it's a good thing to gain you know, an understanding of how servicemen um, are affected by these sorts of things, even the barbarians love people that love them. It's whether or not you can love your enemies. Um, that shows the quality of your love. And I ho would hope one day to be able to, um, to help out um, spreading awareness um, on behalf of the Iraqis. The, uh, I'll try to close it up here. Um, made um, between the flood and um, and struggling through cancer um, there's an interesting um, parallel that I'd like to elaborate on a little bit and and it has to do with the number of people that uh, came to the assistance of St. Wenceslas uh, that allowed um, her to be reborn when the water subsided um, people got to work and, and it's very easy in dire situations uh, to get lost in uh, in the gloom uh, or to imagine a a brass ring sort of solution that you pin your hopes on and um, and it's very easy to go to one or the other um, one or the other uh, extreme but in those situations in the case of St. Wenceslas um, first it took the initiative of individuals um, to bring St. Wenceslas back to life. 
And a very similar thing has happened um, in my life, and it's witnessing the amount um, of love that came to my aid um, after my diagnosis. When I came back from Iraq, I was very, very, very angry and um, became very cynical um, about most things in life. And, um, and saw a lot of um, my friends who, uh, who worked um, in peace and justice, peace and justice initiatives um, also um, get very, very um, cynical as time went along. And, and justice calls for a certain righteous anger. In the face of injustice, we should be angry. But when that, when that anger transforms um, into cynicism, it becomes a cancer um, to one's heart. And in my case, it's been cancer that's helped heal the other cancer. It's the physical cancer that's, that's helped uh, to heal the, the, more, the, uh, the emotional and the spiritual cancer that I, that I suffered in the wake of um, my experiences in Iraq. Uh, a bunch of things that I could tell you, um, but I don't want this to be um, a tell-all of the grim details. Um, but when I saw, this was also during my father's, uh, my father's uh, cancer. When I, during that year, I saw countless people that if we were to sit down and have um, a conversation, we could probably start an argument pretty soon, um, as soon as it arrived to politics. Um, and I probably would have been very um, uh, eager to, in, to get into the argument. And but during that year, we needed people to stay afloat. And what I got to experience during that year was quiches, uh, spaghetti dinners, drives when the kids, uh, my sister's kids needed to get places, um, support to, to uh, help with medication and other, um, other sorts of practical necessities. And I got to witness that as, as, as an observer, and it was moving. But when I became the person who was the object of that, uh, that affection, it, it went to a different level. You know, I write to people and I say, um, I say, you know, to you, I'm simply one person. That, that you send a check to, um, or that you help with um, with riots, or getting me the vegetables that I juice every day to help um, keep me healthy. But for me, I'm at the center of that um, that storm. And for the first three weeks, um, about when I came home from the VA hospital in Chicago, I would have I, mom and I would have to debrief. Today, I would just be in my bed sighing at night, trying to comprehend um, how many people came to our aid um, and how how much people genuinely desire to sacrifice on the behalf of other people. 
and how good um, people are when asked to be good. And, uh, and in the same way that same way that the, uh, the the care and attention that the doctors have given me and the uh, uh, the nutritional changes that I've that I've made to, to make uh, to create a climate in my body in which cancer um, can't survive the same thing applies to the reaction and the response that people have given me of creating an environment in which my cynicism can survive. That in the midst of, um, in the midst of love, uh, cynicism can't win. That it, it, you know, perfect love drives out all fear. And, and if I had an experience of gratitude Watching my father um, go through suffering, um, I've experienced gratitude uh, in a way that that is. It's not just transformative. It's almost as if I've been reborn. And and that couldn't have happened were it not for the suffering that I've gone through and I continue to go through. And when I pray, I don't pray. Um, Necessarily, that that um, that God heals me, um, you know, instantaneously. Um, we certainly do pray for that too. We pray for healing. Um, but I've experienced too much uh, during this short period of time of rather severe illness um, that. The emotional and spiritual transformation that, that has occurred within me uh, could not have taken place were it not for the suffering itself. And in a certain sense, I give thanks to God for the suffering in particular. Um, and and having seen my dad go through cancer for a year. I understand, I think, a little bit better how his journey towards, uh, towards holiness and his, his, his journey in, 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 in after Christ and, uh, and growing in love and compassion, how that is intimately connected with um, what seemed to us who observed him uh, slowly pass away uh, for a year. How all of that, um, all of that life beforehand uh, served as the nourishment um, to sustain him when his body failed. And 
my dad was never able to, uh, you know, he, he had a short time to live um, after uh, he was first diagnosed, and whether he ever fully understood his diagnosis is not, is not sure. But I have that opportunity, and I have the opportunity not only to share an experience um, with with my father, which is something that that in the in the, in the depth of the shared experience, not many people have the opportunity um, to experience. It's not the way you typically hear about um, about cancer as an opportunity. But in the midst of people who believe that the most central action of all human history is a moment of torture, it's totally not me. <laughs> the, the crucifixions, and this is Satan trying to interrupt. If the most pivotal point in history is, is a willing decision to experience suffering on behalf of others, Then not only you know, should we be ready to suffer, but we shouldn't. I don't want to say that we should be um, desirous to suffer, um, but we should be open to how suffering in our lives um, is brought for our own benefit, and we won't know what that benefit is until it's brought to you. And you might not understand it um, over the course of um, over the course of your life. I'm sure that I won't comprehend um, everything of my experience to, um, for as long for as many days as God gives me. But I've been shown enough um, to be gra uh, to be grateful. And I'm grateful to you all for having me here tonight. Thanks.